This week on the Back Table Podcast. I think if you approach the different treatments, tastes, or radioembolization in that manner, you need to have something that helps you overcome those hydrostatic forces. You know, the, 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 um, the fact that, you know, a lot of these uh, patients are in VEGF or EGFR inhibition, and that's going to change that microenvironment as well. So if you're, if you're not, if you're not uh, preparing yourself to deal with that, then you're going to fall on your face. Hello and welcome to the Backtable podcast. Backtable is your resource to connect with your IR colleagues and learn tips, techniques, and the ins and outs of the devices in your cabinets. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast and more on our free iTunes app. This is Mike Barraza returning as your host. Today's podcast is brought to you by Surefire Medical. Surefire has the only expandable tip catheter to help physicians maintain blood flow while reducing reflux during chemoembolization and radioembolization. The Surefire Infusion System helps interventional radiologists deliver therapy deeper into tumors while protecting healthy tissues. Learn more at surefiremedical.com. Today's episode is the second in a two-part series exploring the optimization of tumor uptake on therapeutic embolic materials delivered in transarterial interventions for HCC. In part one of this series, Dr. Charlie Nutting and Nainesh Parikh debated the merits of pressure-directed infusion to improve selected delivery of radioembolics and minimize non-target embolization during Y90 radioembolization. Today, we're furthering that discussion to focus on maximization of tumor uptake and chemoembolization. I'm honored to be joined today by Drs. Justin Lee and Terrence Gade. Thank you both for being a part of this. Uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to begin by asking you uh, each to tell us a little bit about yourselves and your practice, as well as the role chemoembolization currently plays within it, starting with you, Justin. Okay, well, um, I am. my name is Justin Lee. I'm an interventional radiologist in Sarasota, Florida. Um, I actually um, was a direct pathway resident, uh, the first one, uh, believe it or not, at Georgetown University. And um, after I finished my training there, I stayed on as a faculty for four years and then kind of got burned out on academics and decided to uh, move my family someplace a little bit more desirable to live. So we moved to uh, Sarasota, Florida, which is a, a community on the west coast of Florida. It's a big hospital, 820 bed hospital that really had no interventional radiology going on um, when, when I accepted the job. And in uh, at a, coming up in May, it'll be five years I've been here. We've really uh, righted the ship, um, and we have a pretty robust I.O. program um, doing a lot of uh, radioembolization, a lot of taste, uh, a lot of ablation. Um, and because of where we're located, which is uh, we're about an hour and a half south of Tampa, um, we're about an hour and a half north of Fort Myers. We have a huge catchment area. So we've really been able to bring um, sort of advanced IO procedures um, to the community and keep people here um, in the community rather than having them travel to Miami or Moffitt and Tampa. And um, that's been really rewarding. And um, and in addition to that, we've just advanced uh, a couple uh, research trials where um, I'm the PI the local PI, and one of them is uh, the Surefire Registry for HCC. Um, we're part of the Resin Registry, and so um, we've in- incorporated things like the Surefire catheter um, into those trials because um, we believe that uh, that there is a um, a utility in in the catheter. So, so next we have Dr. Terrence Gade, and I should probably mention that I know his story because I trained under him. Uh, finished up about six months ago, but you know, for the sake of our listeners, Terrence, tell us about chemoembolization at Penn and what you're doing. Like you just mentioned, my name is uh, Terrence Gade. I'm uh, an assistant professor and uh, attending interventional radiologist at the um, Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Um, 
I'm assistant professor of cancer biology and radiology, and I'm a co-founder and co-director of the Penn Image Guided Interventions Lab. And my practice is a little bit different uh, from most in the sense that I'm predominantly uh, in the lab. So um, I'm about 30% clinical and 70% research. So um, my perspectives are a little bit uh, uh, colored by by uh, what my practice looks like. Um, so uh, you mentioned specifically uh, chemoembolization at, at Penn, and I think... Um, you know, we're fortunate to have one of the uh, the real pioneers in interventional oncology at Penn, Michael Solon, and um, uh, you and I both trained under him. And I think um, our approach is, is definitely um, influenced by his thoughts and considerations. And so we focus on uh, conventional taste using uh, lipidol as a drug delivery agent, followed by um, uh, an embosphere uh, as the embolic. Um in addition to conventional taste, which is predominantly what's done at uh, at HOP, we also perform deb taste, uh, which we do predominantly at the VA. So I do get a, uh, the opportunity to uh, sort of contrast and compare those different approaches. And Terrence, you've really run with a lot of this stuff that Michael Sullivan started. I mean, you were the first ever radiologist to receive the NIH Director's Early Independence Award. And that grant was specifically to investigate imaging of metabolic changes in cells after chemoembolization. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Um, so we were fortunate enough to uh, to get some support um, from the NIH to start to think about some of the biology that underlies the cellular response to taste, um, how we can leverage that response to improve therapy. And that sort of emphasized the stress responses that these cells mobilize in the ischemic environment and how that gener- generates um vulnerabilities that are, are not necessarily um, sensitive to mutations. You know, as we know, um, cancer genetic, is a genetic disease, and there are a number of mutations that underlie cancer. And cancer cells can further mutate those pathways, but there are a set of pathways um, that uh, um, are not often mutated uh, because they are so essential for uh, these cells to survive. Um, and we've been looking at how uh, these the induced by different embolic methodologies can um, generate these dependencies and how we can go about targeting them. But to target them, obviously, we first have to know that these these cell populations exist, these uh, populations that are dependent on these stress response pathways. And we focused on developing a, a hyperpolarized metabolic imaging approach to be able to start to see cell populations that we can't visualize using conventional imaging approaches. Now, is the Piggy Lab following with this as well, or is that something separate? Uh, no, this is all part of the Piggy Lab. So the um, you know the, pig, the Piggy Lab was founded by Greg uh, Nadolski and Stephen Hunt and I, and uh, as residents actually. And then um, as we developed into fellowship uh, and stayed on as attendings, um, the Piggy Lab is sort of a uh, is a it's a team science uh, lab where we have multiple investigators um, with shared interests, and so it encompasses a broad range of different um, projects. All of them focus on the tumor microenvironment. Um, and how that can be modulated through image-guided interventions. Uh, before we get into this a bit more, I, I do want to bring up one point. You know, there's been a lot of buzz uh, about some of the more recent data comparing chemoembolization to radioembolization for HCC. Uh, do either of you anticipate any changes to your approach in, in the coming years? Uh, you know, I'm not really compelled by single institution uh, data that suggests that Y90 is superior to taste, particularly for a disease that falls in the spectrum for taste. Okay. So, you know, in my practice, if, um, you know, we're not a transplant center. So 
if I have a small lesion, um, for me, that if it, if it falls into my realm and that patient's not going to be a transplant candidate, and that happens often because we've got an octogenarian population here, um, and they might not be a great surgical candidate, they're out of Milan for for transplant. If I have a small lesion, I'm going to probably do taste ablation if that person's not going to be resected. So we we pretty much follow the BCLC, and we don't really amend it. Um, you know, so if they're BCLCA um, and they've got a small lesion or one lesion or, or, or maybe a few lesions, but they're all less than five centimeters or even less than three centimeters, then, you know, I'm going to taste ablate that before I would apply Y90. For me, radioembolization is a tool for metastatic disease. And really in my practice at Georgetown, um, that was like the gateway for us to get into metastatic disease. And, and, by that, I mean colorectal, pancreas. I mean, you know, we apply it just about anything, anything that we think is radiosensitive or the patient would do better with a wider scope of embolization using a different um, model rather than, you know, uh, uh, vessel occlusion and, and, and uh, drug, then we would apply radioembolization. So for me, if somebody has portal vein invasion, if they have HCC with portal vein invasion, or their their disease is behaving more as if they were a patient who had metastatic disease, and by that I mean bilobar disease, uh-huh. you know, large infiltrative lesions, vascular invasion, um, you know, that is for me a radioembolization patient. Beyond that, if if you know, I, I I travel around the country and I and we obviously are doing a lot of radioembolization for HCC, and I see patients treating, or I, I'm sorry, I see you know, IR is treating five centimeter unilobar lesions with Y90. And I just think that's kind of a, um, I think you're kind of applying something that costs more. It's got a lot more nuances to it. Um, and without a real demonst- demonstrable survival benefit, except, you know, potentially for cases of portal vein invasion, I think that, I think that you're, you're walking down a road of healthcare cost and, 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 and risking, particularly if you're in the community, you're risking marginalizing your medical oncologist too, because you know what's sneaky around the corner are the PD-1 inhibitors, um, which are being you know widely applied for better or for worse. Um, and I think that if you, you know, if you if you stray from guidelines um, just because your institution is you know has a lot of experience with radioembolization, you're gonna you're gonna get um, all of us in trouble. But that's again, that's my opinion. No, I, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of the taste ablation approach. I think you bring up a very important point when you mention the community aspects and, and specifically the word marginalization. You know, it, uh, it it's it bears reminding that we have, just have so much more history with taste as a procedure, and it's much more accessible in smaller communities, much smaller than in Sarasota. Even I mean, you're you're not going to find Y90 in you know 200 miles from where you are outside of a larger city. Well, I think you'd be shocked, actually. Um, I mean, I just I just helped to open an account in Inverness, Florida, which is kind of in the middle of nowhere. And, um, you know, it took me two and a half hours to drive there. And the thing is, is that for me, I, I feel like Y90 is a very, what I will agree with Northwestern, Y90 is a very well tolerated procedure. Um, and, you know, clearly they've shown, you know, that taste and Y90 taste has more side effects. Um, you know, some of the initial articles that were all cam taste, you know, which, which I'm, I'm really interested to hear, you know, from Terrence in terms of, you know, they're still using Lapidol. I would say that most people are not using Lapidol. And for me, Deb taste, you know, I don't know. I send people home oftentimes on the same day as a Deb taste. So um, 
the, the point you bring up about, about accessibility, I, I'd like to see Y90 more accessible in the community, but it is true. I mean, I have a, we did a little analysis. It's like 25 to 30% of our population does not have Medicare and they're on Medicaid. Well, I already know before I see that patient that they're not a Y90 candidate, you know, whether I want them to be or not, I've got to be a little bit creative with how I'm going to treat those patients. And I can get somebody scheduled for a taste the next day, pretty much. I mean, you know, granted bead loading and that type of thing um, versus a Y90, you can wait sometimes a long time still in, uh, you know, that sort of predetermination area. And if you're not fast in the community, you know, your oncologist is going to move along. And um, I think that's, I think that's a, another point that people don't really think about. And, and when I was in academics, I mean, I'm, you know, I was in that role where, you know, we were getting people from the community. A lot of them were failures or they just didn't, you know, people didn't want to treat them in the community because HCC doesn't really have a whole lot of infusional therapies. And yeah, it's okay. Then you can start applying Y90. But when you start to get out into what I don't, I don't want to call it the real world and, and be, um, you know, be a, a jerk or anything, but, uh, you know, in the community, you're not going to have that luxury. You know, you're not going to be able to apply a, a, a therapy that, the dose alone is $16,000. Um, and you know, you've got to map them once and then treat them again. And you know, I mean, I'm, I'm getting long winded here, but even when you look at Northwestern was, they were doing, uh, mapping and treating on the same day and their own institution, you know, told them to stop that because from a standpoint of your own hospital, you know, that's just not financially feasible for them. They, they want you to treat them on separate days. And when you look at the nitty gritty of the program, you know, I think, Taste is just, it's easy, it works, it's effective, patients do well from it, um, and, and, it's, and, it's, um, and it's been, you know, tried and true since, you know, the 90s. Right. Terrence, anything to add there? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would echo a lot of the things that Justin mentioned. Um, I, I would say that, um, you know, it's, you know we're, we're clearly, especially uh, with the work that's coming out of Northwestern and the premier trial, making yeah. significant strides um, with respect to characterizing the variety of different endovascular local regional therapies we can apply. Um, but we obviously, uh, as, as Justin's mentioned, we have a lot of important progress to make. And specifically, um, I think we really need to, to use all the information at our disposal. And, and this is sort of how um, I think about it. And I think a lot of my colleagues think about it um, and not assume that every tumor is, is alike or every HCC is alike and really consider the biology of the tumor and what data we have from our imaging um, to to sort of influence that because, you know, our ultimate goal, and I think, you know, with the Cancer Moonshot and a lot of these initiatives going on, is to apply a precision medicine approach. And and while, you know, that can mean a lot of different things to uh, to different people, um, I think we do have tools to, to generate a precision medicine approach in this regard, um, looking at the vascularity of the tumor and, and things of that nature. Um, so, you know, we tend to choose therapies on a patient-by-patient basis, um, factoring in, you know, all the things that Justin mentioned, clinical considerations, in particular liver function, um, like I mentioned, the biology of the tumor in terms of vascularity, um, and where, where available, and this is becoming um, increasingly common, is, is data regarding, um, uh, you know, tissue biopsy, what we know on a molecular level about the tumor itself, um, and, and what that could mean for its susceptibility to uh, radiation versus um, you know, in a more um, ischemic-driven uh, uh, technology. Okay. Uh, now, Terrence, because you have experience with both, um, you know, conventional taste and dev taste, you know, very commonly. I mean, 
uh, this gives us some interesting perspective on this. Could you tell us a bit more about your experience with both, you know, the benefits, advantages, disadvantages, and, and you know, if you have a preference? Sure. Um, you know, I, again, I, I agree with Justin. I think the side effect profile for um, uh, DEBS is, is far better. Um, and patients tend to do, uh, you know, better afterwards. Um, you know, how much is, it's a hard thing to say, I think. Um, but I, I, you know, from a biological standpoint, I, I do believe that, um, and I think, you know, Karen Brown's work, uh, underscores this, that the, the ultimate therapeutic effect comes from the ischemia we're inducing. Um, so I think that, um, I'm a big believer in the, uh, embolization component, and I'm less of a believer in uh, the uh, chemotherapeutics. So my concern with DEBS tends to be that that's more focused on drug delivery. Um, you know, it's about um, right. getting more docs or what have you to the tumor. Um, and I think that in terms of um, what data we do have, um, the you know, the, those chemotherapeutics are, are probably not the best choice. The ones we're using are, are probably not the correct drugs. And if we're talking about inducing vulnerabilities, if, if, we, if we embolize the tumor and we block off the vasculature and we induce ischemia, um, those cells are now fundamentally different from this, um, the cells that were growing without the embolization. And those cells tend, the cells without the embolization tend to believe proliferating, as we see on scans. We see tumors, tumors grow. Um, but after embolization, they can sort of hang out there without growing. And that tells us a lot about uh, the cell status. So in that circumstance, you have cells that aren't cycling anymore, but we're using an agent that's meant to potentiate the ischemia. Um, and using an agent that targets proliferating cells is probably not going to potentiate that ischemia a whole lot. And again, I think that JCO article from Karen Brown um, underscores that concept. So, um, you know, while I do, you know, prefer the side effect profile for Deb's taste o- over uh, conventional taste, I think that um, ultimately the biology we're targeting is better served through uh, a conventional taste approach than it is through Deb taste. And that sort of, I would caveat that by saying that I think we really need to start thinking, and there's a lot of research being done in this area, but start thinking about which drugs we're combining to potentiate the ischemia. Um, And there's a lot of progress been made in that area. And I think we as interventionalists um, really need to start thinking about that biology and integrating some of those therapeutics uh, into our practice rather than, you know, sort of taking what's always been administered, what, you know, and, and, you know, really um, when the decision was made to start using those drugs, cisplatin, mitomycin, and doxorubicin, there wasn't any real reason. It wasn't that HCCs are susceptible to those drugs because they, they can be, you know, HCCs are, are among the most radio or um, uh, chemo resistant uh, cells that we know of in cancer. So, um, I think we need to do a little better job of thinking rationally about the therapeutics yeah. we're using and integrating our science. Uh, now, Justin, a question I have for you, because most of my experience is limited to conventional taste, uh, comparing Deb taste to Y90, I mean, with, uh, you know, we're obviously dealing with a difference in the relative embolic effect of the treatment material. You know, for Y90, you're generally committed to delivering a pre-calculated dose, which is you know, generally attainable due to the comparatively low embolic load, but for chemoembolization, it, it, at least for lapidol, uh, I mean, for conventional taste, you know, the goal is just to deliver as much as you can safely before reaching stasis. Uh, so, you know, with, with Deb taste, uh, I mean, with conventional taste, you know, I think we've all been surprised by how much or little it takes to get to stasis in certain patients. Like, what is your, your, your goal mainly for um, Deb taste? Like, how do you know when you've gotten there? And is it really about how much of a vow you give? Well, um, First, I'd actually like to uh, 
so for me, the way I was trained was exactly the way you guys were trained. I mean, cam taste was what it was. Um, Deb taste didn't come around until, until I was actually practicing. And um, the interesting thing about it was that, uh, you know, we, we saw the drugs one by one go away and lack of availability. And um, I have to plug one of my attendings at the time. His name is Karun Sharma. Um, he was part-time at Georgetown, part-time at the NIH. He was probably the first guy to use um, drug-eluting beads. And uh, at the time, you know, what we had was 300 or 500 micron size uh, beads. And when I first became an attending, I, I was like, I, you know, I don't see the real reason to, to, to use this. This was before Precision 5. And, um, and I persisted trying to do um, essentially cam taste with doxorubicin. But at that time, too, doxorubicin was was no longer in a powdered form. It was liquid. So you would get, instead of having this concentrated red toxic looking mix, you would get this sort of diluted looking mix. And I actually had treatment failures and that's kind of what pushed me over the edge into Deb taste. And, you know, things have obviously changed too. We had a lapidol shortage, which also kind of pushed us to Deb taste. And so I wonder a little bit, you know, outside of, uh, you know, pen, if a lot of people just sort of did Deb taste because they had to, it was out of necessity. It wasn't necessarily out of, you know, th- that we thought it was superior. I mean, one of the things that I look at when I, when I trained, I mean, one of our endpoints for, um, for uh, taste when using Lepiodol was uh, that we would see sort of portal venous staining. And uh, you don't get that when you're using beads. Um, and everybody assumes also, you know, from a Y90 standpoint, because the Y90 beads are so much smaller, 20 to 60 microns in size, that smaller was better. Uh, but, but that's, you know, Dave Liu has a great talk on that. You know, the smaller beads, the M1 beads and the, you know, the ones that are, you know, under 100 microns, well, they they drop their drug really quickly. And, you know, one of the funniest things happened is sort of a, a little anecdote but when I introduced Deb Taste down here, Deb Docs Taste, you know, I said, you know, we use doxorubicin and they hadn't really been doing it. And they're like, well, why would you use doxorubicin? You know, we, we know that that doesn't work on really anything except breast cancer, really. So it's kind of, it was kind of funny, you know, it's, and I don't have an, I don't have a response for that. You know, it is, it's an old, you know, crappy cytotoxic drug um, that has a lot of side effects and, and, um, you know, and here we say, well, we're going to, you know, you know, this is, cutting edge, you know, I'm going to introduce this to Sarasota. We're going to put doxorubicin on a bead and I'm going to administer it via the artery. And, uh, you know, I think that's, that's sometimes a little hard for a community oncologist to swallow. So getting back to your question, you know, again, I think for me, I would, I agree. And I'm not a bench guy, but I agree that for me, embolization is more important. And if you really look at precision five, which I know is old at this point, but you know, after they put in, um, you know, Deb Docs, they they went to stasis. So that's probably my end point. If I don't achieve stasis, you know, I I feel like I haven't done my job. So I'll bland embo after that. And uh, you know, and then again, I'm really big on on um, on um, you know uh, ablating the lesions after if if I can. And uh, the rationale for that for me is, you know, I have. I have to live in the world of, of sort of competitive medicine and we do have tumor boards and whatnot, but um, you know, I need to offer as close to a surgical resection as possible. So, so I, um, and then, and then to take it one step further with the, which again, this is more in Terrence's world, but you know, I believe a little bit in 
hopefully trying to potentiate the immune system with ablation. So I don't know which one would work better, but, you know, there's a lot of science out there. Damien Dupuis, you know, has a, has a review article in Nature about, you know, ablation and how that can kind of alert the immune system to the presence of the cancer or the presence of not self. And, um, you know, and I think that's an exciting area, particularly when you're talking about the you know, the, the encroachment of Optivo and Keytruda into the HCC world, it's something that you want to keep on your radar screen. And it's also, you know, I guess for the IRs that would listen to this and, and they're not in a, in a uh, academic setting, it's something to start talking about with your, with your medical oncologist because GI ASCO and ASCO are really hot on immunotherapies. And you want to, you want to try to position yourself in a way to let them know that you're thinking about it too. And lastly, I would also plug you know, I was I was trained that we never biopsy HCC, and we you know we've we've had a couple hirings here, um, and you know we get people out of fellowship, and they and they, and they say the same thing, and and the AASLD would support that. You know, if you have an MRI that shows, you know, a hypervascular lesion with washout, and the patient's got an AFP, and you know they got a cirrhotic liver, or a history of Hep C, why would you biopsy that? Well, I I actually went to. Uh, Dave Liu's meeting, the show meeting in Whistler, which I'll plug because I think it's a great meeting and I have absolutely no affiliation with it. I just like to go skiing and do my thing there. But <laughs> they, um, you know, there was a medical oncologist from Canada, which obviously is a lot of, it's a different system than we have in America. And she discussed, you know, really this concept of each tumor is an individual in a sense. And, you know, we've got these mixed type HCCs. They, you know, they may be a mixed type cholangio slash HCC. And, you know, a cholangio is treated totally differently at least in my practice, than, than is an HCC. I mean, a cholangio is going to get gemcitabine cisplatin. We're probably going to do Y90 for it. And so I'm actually pretty big on biopsying. And, and that's, that's, a, that's a real change from what I was doing at Georgetown. We would never touch a, an HCC. Um, we would never ablate an HCC for risk that we would uh, track seed. Um, now I'm completely the opposite. I biopsy every Y90 you know, at the mapping I biopsy almost every liver lesion, even if I'm confident it's an HCC, because I think, I think as Terrence was alluding to, it's it's going to be important, and we need to embrace that and be on that on that front. So, you know, for for an endpoint, for me, it's stasis for for debtase, it's stasis. I like to see a tumor stain. Uh, I like to get a cone beam at the end of a taste because I know that in all likelihood, I'm going to try to ablate that lesion. So it's a long, a long answer to a short question. I'm really glad that Justin mentioned that, and I'm really sort of excited to hear that other people out there are biopsying the HCCs, uh, these or these tumors in general, because um, we've been running a, a biopsy a clinical trial looking to characterize a variety of different features of HCCs in the setting or before and after taste um, with respect to immune response and the metabolic response. Um, and then also looking at uh, some of the genomics of these tumors. And, um, and, and like Justin mentioned, we're finding some really surprising things in terms of um, what these tumors really are, you know, um, whether they be mixed tumors or truly cholangios. And I think, you know, there are real limitations to the imaging approaches we're, we're applying uh, towards diagnosing these tumors. And I think um, uh, we're gonna, we find a lot of surprising things just at baseline about what these tumors truly are. But like like Justin mentioned, and um, uh, as with a lot of the work that's coming out of Sloan Kettering, um, you know, we're learning a lot about how we can use um, genetics and even um, CRISPR-based technology to start to think about, um, you know, generating these precision medicine approaches, which are going to change outcomes, um, you know, without a doubt. I think 
I think for us, um, outcomes are a real moving target just because there is so much heterogeneity in, in the way that people apply their methodologies, um, you know, in terms of you know, what they embolize to or, you know, are they applying bland embolics um, after their DEBs? Um, and, and that makes it hard for us to draw conclusions from our clinical trials. But I do think that um, we, we may begin to be able to stratify some of these responses more effectively using the uh, characterization of these um, genetic features within the tumors. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I know I personally have contributed some beautiful biopsies to that trial. So, you know, I guess wow. we should all, we should yeah. all be thinking, we should all be the thinking. Best, the best. I want you to know uh, those are the best ones we have. Exactly. You know, our future How do I patients get on this trial? will be thanking I mean, me. <laughs> um, so Terrence, you and I actually talked a little bit before this about uh, tumor uptake uh, for HCC and some of those barriers. Could you expound on that a little bit? Um, sure. Um, you know, I, I think there, there's been a lot of work that, you know, uh, already in the literature uh, that talks about the different barriers to um, therapeutic delivery in cancer. And I think, um, you know, it sometimes surprises me that uh, we don't have more discussions about this, but I think they're 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 coming up more and more within IR, and um and I know that uh, the SIO has been sponsoring fellows and and other people to go to uh, a uh, barriers to drug delivery meeting that's run by Rakesh Jain uh, in Boston, who's one of the real pioneers in this field, and um I think we have to think about it you know compartmentally. There are a variety of of different barriers in terms of drug delivery. And as IRs, we overcome probably the most important one, um, getting a more local regional delivery of our therapeutic to the tumor. Um, but, you know, it doesn't really stop there. I think we really have to think about the other factors that contribute to um, sort of uh, chemo resistance on the part of the, the cancer itself in terms of not just how it reacts to the drug, but how the drug gets to the tumor. So we deliver our embolics into the vasculature and um, that, that, you know, the drug that we administer has to uh, traverse the um, endothelium the, the, um, and get into the tumor itself. And then once it's into the tumor itself, we have to try to make it uh, or, or create an effect so that it uh, translates through the tumor homogeneously, right? We want every cancer cell to see the same amount of drug. We don't want heterogeneous uh, delivery of that therapeutic. And I think one of the things that will help us get that drug, well, or the primary thing that will help us get that drug across um, the endothelium, is the are the differences in hydrostatic pressure. So um, we know that tumors are sort of made to mitigate this, but ultimately we need the uh, hydrostatic pressure within the vessel to be higher than it is within the interstitium of the tumor. That will get the drug out of the vessel and into the tumor. But that's really, in my mind, only twenty five percent of the job. We need next to generate or change the interstitial fluid pressure within the tumor so that we favor convection of that drug through the tumor. If there's no difference, if, there are high, if there's high interstitial fluid pressure um, within the tumor, then that drug is going to get, out of the, end, get a, out of the vessel and then basically sit just outside the vessel um, and not move anywhere within the tumor. So I think we have to think about um, you know, Starling's equation and how we can modulate that in order to uh, favor drug delivery throughout the tumor. Okay. Uh, yeah. And, you know, pressure-directed therapy seems to be a way to improve that. You know, what, what kind of benefits can we get from that in the tumor microenvironment? Um, so I think that, you know, one of the things that, you know, certainly pressure-directed therapy will do, um, and, and the data for this is, is, is starting to come, come out more and more, uh, it should be allow us to increase that hydrostatic pressure within the vessel. So, um, and that will enable a number of things. Number number one, it's going to allow us to um, 
sort of um, drive more drug into those vessels or more therapeutic into those vessels. So we're delivering more of our payload to the vasculature itself. Um, we've also seen how it can induce a reversal of blood flow so that we're sort of sumping um, blood away from non-target structures or areas of the uh, liver and towards the tumor. Um, and finally, it should uh, mitigate that hydrostatic pressure gradient I was talking about where now we are driving those hydrostatic pressures in the tumor vasculature up above uh, the hydrostatic pressures within the interstitium of the tumor, and that should favor translocation of the drug from the vessel into the tumor. Justin, do you have anything to add about that? And, you know, I know you've got a lot of experience with uh, pressure-directed therapy for HCC. Um, I mean, you know, from a from a scientific standpoint, I guess, you know, I, I would be a neophyte in that. But, you know, for me, you know, an anti-reflux catheter was initially, it was, it was really just, I got introduced to it very early because um, Bill Banovac, who was the chief of the section at uh, Georgetown, happened to be fraternity brothers with Jim Chomas, who's the uh, CEO of Surefire. And, uh, you know, we were doing a lot of Y90 at Georgetown and he, and he basically said, would you mind trying to use this thing? And, you know, in the beginning it was all about, um, you know, the convenience of delivery, uh, you know, and, and anti-reflux and not coiling in the GDA and that type of thing. And the catheter was pretty clunky and it, you know, it had a lot of issues with it, but right from the be- right from the beginning, I mean, I have some cases that I shared with Jim where, you know, I, I would be doing a right lobe treatment and, you know, and, and we, we would sometimes do it with MAA, you know, just to kind of look at it and you would see left lobe uptake, you know, and it was, it was, it was odd. And, um, you know, it wasn't something I was really thinking about at the time because we were really thinking about, okay, we have this embolic that'll fry your guts out if it goes to the wrong place. So we want to make sure it goes to the right spot. And, um, and then, you know, I kind of left Georgetown and, and left Surefire a little bit, but in a, in the um, in that interim, uh, until we re-engaged with it back at uh, in Sarasota, you know there were some you know small little studies that looked at you know particulate uptake. Um, specifically, uh, there was a JVIR paper that looked at you know MAA end hole versus um, versus with an anti-reflux catheter, and they sort of showed that you know there was more tumor uptake uh, in that environment where the the arterial flow is altered by opening, you know, the cone. And, um, and then I had an opportunity to meet with Jim again and he kind of, he espoused this, this concept of the surefire being like a spring that kind of pushes your, you know, your, your embolic into the tumor. And, and, um, and so we kind of circled back with that. And then, um, Arvin Arapali, who's, you know, kind of the, you know, the developer of the surefire, he had uh, that paper, that looked actually at HCC specifically and it looked at um, tumor necrosis and, um, and then I think particulate and they blinded, I believe, uh, I believe they blinded the pathologist or something like that, but it was, it was an explant thing where, you know, they were taking the HCCs out in a, um, you know, for, for transplant. And, you know, they, I think they had a degree of necrosis that was in, increased in, um, in the, uh, the anti-reflux catheter, uh, segment of patients. And again, small single institution study, but that kind of turned my, turned my attention onto it. And so that's kind of where I, where I am. And, you know, and I think like oftentimes if you, let's say you have a, let's say the way that I, the way that I do dev docs, you have 
you know, smaller beads and then you have a group of larger beads. Well, at what point you transition away from your smaller beads? You know, like when do you go for the larger stuff? And what's your, what, you know, should you just put in the smaller beads so you get to the end and then not put in the larger beads? And, you know, and again, this is a very macroscopic, you know, sort of thought process. But if you can somehow prescribe a dose of a drug, you know, be it 100 milligrams of doxorubicin, mm-hmm. 150 milligrams of doxorubicin, whatever you're using, uh, you know, you, you kind of feel like you want to get that in, right? And so that's kind of that's kind of where I am on that. And then, you know, when it when it comes to radioembolization, which is where I really use uh, Surefire, is that you know one of the one of the problems that I have is that people are looking at radioembolization as you know, and again, this is a little bit of my resin versus glass bias, but it's kind of like, well, more more dose is better. And as long as we can get more dose in, it's going to be better. We're going to nuke the tumor, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I mean, as you're seeing in the literature right now, this you know this concept of like a subclinical RALD, not not necessarily putting people into liver failure, but you know, getting that veno occlusive effect, uh, you know, just like you would if you had a Bud Chiari, but on a on a micro scale, um, that's there. There is radiation injury that happens, and Absolutely. so. For me, I'm a big dosimetry guy right now. I mean, I've really taken a hard turn towards not prescribing more, but prescribing the right dose. And and I, again, I don't know where that is right now. I'm not sure what the right dose is, but you know, I, I kind of in my own practice, I use the partition method plus I use BSA. Um, and granted, I'm a resin guy, so but I think about it a lot. And if I prescribe a dose, I want to deliver that dose. You know, be it I'm doing a segmentectomy or a lobectomy, like I want to be able to deliver that dose. And it's not just, you know, because I because I want to get lots of beads in there and I want to get lots of radiation in there. It's because I want it to be efficient and I want it to go to the tumor. And so I look at some of those small centered papers and I, I feel like there's a signal there um, that, you know, it's, it's going to be difficult to show. Um, you know, it's going to be difficult to show in a big study because there's a lot of heterogeneity, as Terrence was talking about, in these different tumors. But I want to be able to deliver that dose. And so I apply Surefire um, to my practice because I think it helps me to, you know, to deliver what I want, you know, what if, be it drug, be it uh, volume of beads, be it, be it activity of Y90, that's, that's my goal. And so, um, you know, and so while that's a very, you know, biased, you know, I guess if you want to call it single centered, you know, opinion, which is really what it is. Um, the one thing that's become true in my practice is, you know, I, I, I can balance the cost of the Surefire with the, um, the fact that I don't coil people anymore on mappings. I mean, it's very, very rare. And, um, and, and I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of evil about the dose. I mean, I really, it drives me crazy when I go and I just hear like, well, we put two vials and, you know, we, we put a, you know, two vials, 120 gray each. Well, it's like, well, no, you're not. You have absolutely no idea what that that absorbed dose is because you're assuming there that there's uniformity in your distribution of beads. And in reality that we know that doesn't happen. That's a failure of all the dosimetry models. So for radioembolization, you know, if I say, well, okay, I want an activity of 30 millicuries and I want to give it in this specific location. Well, I want to get 30 millicuries in, you know, because that's what, that's what my formula has told me. That's what the combination of cone beam, um, you know, volumetrics and all the other stuff told me. And that's, and, and that's, I think if you approach the different treatments, tastes or radioembolization in that manner, you need to have something that helps you overcome those hydrostatic forces, 
you know, the, 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 um, the fact that, you know, a lot of these uh, patients are in VEGF or EGFR inhibition, and that's going to change that microenvironment as well. So if you're, if you're not, if you're not uh, preparing yourself to deal with that, then you're going to fall on your face. So Terrence, do you think that pressure direct infusion has the same potential uh, benefits for conventional taste that it does for dead taste? Like what, what's the difference there that you would get? So, you know, in my mind, I don't think there's, as I was mentioning, I don't think there should be a huge difference because it's, you're only talking about differences in the delivery vehicle. I think that said, you know, we all know that, um, and, and, you know, some of the, some, some of the problem I think with, um, lapidol directed infusion, even if you're using a water and oil emulsion, which is supposed to be focused on drug delivery and not on embolization, um, which it would be if you had an oil and water emulsion, um, is that you will get some early stasis. And so, you know, ultimately when I'm administering a conventional taste, I'm focused on trying to generate that water and oil emulsion so that I can deliver the whole dose. So sometimes I'll have to thin that out a little bit just so I can ensure that I'm not reaching stasis before I get to my actual embolics. Um, so, so I think that ultimately, as I talk through it, in a sense, the, the, the it, and, and I think it's going to be hard to tease these two things apart, but potentially you might get an added benefit from um, from pressure directed infusion in combination with Deb Taste, um, only because yeah. you're going to uh, be able to, um, you know, you're going to be able to ensure you're going to deliver that whole dose more easily uh, and not have the complication associated with potential stasis through the lipidol. Um, I think, like I, I said, it's going to be a really hard thing to tease those apart, and I'm not sure it would be significant enough where I would favor one over the other, you know, in the setting of pressure-directed delivery. Okay, that helps. Um, well, look, I, I, you know, I think we have covered as much of this as we could feasibly get through in a reasonable amount of time, and we could never get through uh, all of TASE and Y90 uh, and pressure-directed effusion, but I think this gives us a great start. Is there anything that either of you would like to add before we sign off? Um, one, one of the things I just wanted to just think about for, for, for a few seconds is, you know, we, we talked about bead sizes and, um, and, and how to think about that. Um, you know, just one of the more basic concepts is, you know, what, what are we trying, where are we trying to get, um, our therapeutics, you know? And, um, I think ultimately on average, the size of capillary in the human body is like somewhere under 10 microns, but the largest capillaries actually exist in the liver and they can be up to 30 microns in diameter. Um, which means that in a lot of cases, if you say that the, you know, the average size of a, a surfsphere is, is 32 microns, maybe, you know, you are functionally delivering these things distally, you know, as much as possible into the tumor, which is where you're going to get your, your greatest, um, you know, uh, therapeutic effect from the radiation, obviously. Whereas with embolics and, and setting up dead taste or conventional taste, um, you know, these things are going to be on the order of, of 100 microns or greater. And so you're really talking about, at best, administering um, embolics that get to the arterioles. Um, and so, you know, I think that, you know, in the way we think about, the, you know, targeting the, the vasculature, um, you know, we, we have to think about how best to achieve the endpoints of embolization. And I think that, as Justin was mentioning, you know, in terms of using smaller particles, you know, we will be able to get these things more distally. And that means we're going to cut off more collaterals and we're going to achieve a, a greater embolic effect, in, you know, in principle. And, um, and I think it's just something we should consider when we start thinking about bead sizes and uniformity of bead size. 
and how that may influence our practice going forward. Well, Terrence, Justin, thank you both for taking the time to share your experience and help all of us battle this challenging disease. Uh, and lastly, a big thanks to our sponsor, Surefire Medical. Please visit surefiremedical.com to learn how the Surefire infusion system can help you deliver therapy deeper into tumors while protecting healthy tissues. Thanks, everyone, and join us again next time. Surefire Medical is proud to support the interventional radiology community and all of its diverse opinions. The opinions in this podcast may not reflect opinions of Surefire.